Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go back to Matthew chapter 5. According to one website that I looked at, and if it's on the internet, it's true, the um, top three speeches in American history, uh, number one was Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. How many of you remember hearing that speech, okay? I was not alive yet to make you feel bad. Um, powerful speech. I, you know, I, I took the top four speeches from this list and I read through them all. This speech was the only one I had to read out loud, okay? I, I, I felt like, you know, it, it just feels like a sermon, and it makes sense. He was a reverend, but he was a preacher, but... Um, the power of it. And he had one of these lines in there. And I, and I had so many things I wanted to share. But, but one line was, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. That's a powerful line. A powerful uh, call to action that he was calling in that moment. But of course, the most famous, I think, line from that, that speech was when he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Powerful speech. Powerful. It changed many people's lives. was very impactful in changing our country in many ways, I do believe. The number two speech on the list was John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address on uh, January 20th, 1961. Anyone remember this one? 1961, okay, if you okay. All right. Uh, again, several good parts to it. One, he said this, uh, So let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let, her, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. I think the Republican Party could use that today. Civility is not a sign of weakness. But he said this probably again, the most famous part of this speech that he gave was, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Again, powerful moment. The third, the number three speech on the list was FDR's first inaugural address on March 4th, 1933. You remember this one? <laughs> All right, sweetie. No, sorry. Um, yeah, I know. Um, for those of you don't know, my wife is older than me, and you know. But um, the most famous part of this sermon or this uh, speech was the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Man, powerful. He also said in the speech, "These dark days, my friend." will be worth all they cost us if they, re, if they teach us that our true destiny is not to be ministered unto, but to minister to ourselves and to our fellow men. Powerful. Number four speech, I don't have it on here, but just, just, for you know, just so you know, uh, again was uh, FDR uh, after uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, his, his uh, address to the nation. These, these are powerful moments in our country's history where these speeches were, were put out there, and, and people remember these. And, and even if you weren't uh, alive and heard them at the same time, these, these, these lines that, that I brought out, most everyone here was familiar with these things. Like, you know, FDR here, I, I, you know, I wasn't alive when 
um, when that happened. In fact, when he, when he uh, gave that speech, my grandfather was 10 years old. So this goes back a long ways. But I knew that line. I knew that. I knew that he had said this. It was a powerful moment in our country's history. But you know, when we come to Matthew chapter 5, you know, we see that the importance of this sermon here is far greater than these speeches that we talked about. And it has, we cannot overestimate or overstate the power of the Sermon on the Mount. This was one of those times where when Jesus sat down and he goes up to the mountain. And he sits down, and the twelve disciples come up to him, and then the crowds come up to him. He begins to unpack this sermon and this speech, if you will, and it literally changed the course of history. It changed the entire world then at that moment and even today. And, and there are some parts of this speech that people recognize right away, and, and, and they get that line out of, like, it's in this sermon here where Jesus tells us to be perfect. He, he actually tells us to be perfect. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll get to that. It, it, it's, it's, it's in this sermon where these beatitudes that we read before, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It's, it's, it's things like that. People recognize that. It was here. And so this was a, just a, such a powerful moment in our history as people. And it really should be something that we go back to. That we come back to the sermon. And, and I believe that where we are at as a church, where we are at as a country, where we are at in history, this sermon has much for us to consider. So we're going to start unpacking this over the next several months of going through this entire sermon here. But before I get into the first beatitude, I, I kind of need to set a little bit of the groundwork for this. And so the first two points is going to be just some background information. We'll get to that a little bit quickly, then we'll kind of settle in for a few minutes on that first beatitude in verse 3. So first, let's just consider a brief introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The setting of the sermon, as we saw earlier when I read in our call to worship section, was that we see that there was uh, some miraculous ministry that was taking place, and we see at the end of chapter 4. Jesus' popularity was growing. Crowds began to follow Jesus everywhere he went. And so consequently, Jesus had to find times to withdraw himself and teach his disciples very uh, strategically and very, uh, very pointedly. And here's one of those situations. Now we know, by fast-forwarding to the end of the sermon, that the crowds had, had pressed upon him. And while he was teaching this, crowds were gathering. So then at the end, and he addresses the crowds. But the main audience here is his 12 disciples. And he's teaching them. So this is what's happening here. Um, this leads us to why he did this. What's the purpose of this uh, sermon? So the purpose of the sermon is that Jesus' sermon here is that it's really a description of the effects of God's transforming grace. I, I like what one author said as he was writing on this text Charles Quarles, he said this, The Sermon on the Mount is not a call to repentance. It's a description of the, of the expression and evidences of true repentance. So basically what he's saying, and I agree with him, is that what we find here of the next three chapters in Matthew's Gospel here is not necessarily saying, how do you get into the kingdom? But it's saying it's a description of who is in the kingdom, of who has eternal life. 
And we've got to understand that if we're going to properly interpret the, the entire sermon here. We've got to understand what is the purpose of, of, of him giving this sermon here. So it's a description. Another person described the sermon as a, as a, a, a counter-cultural Christian community. It's a description of this, of what does a Christian community truly look like. One who is true disciples of Christ, true followers of Christ. One of the things I appreciated about Glenn Morick, Bart's dad, is as I was talking, and we were trying to figure out what to do with the funeral tomorrow, what to say, and things like this. And he said, he said this, he says, people need to know that she was a true Christian, a true one. And he emphasized that, that, that it, it, not just in name only, she truly was a Christian. And I think that this Sermon on the Mount here is a description of that. So in essence, Jesus defines what it means to be a disciple here. Now, this is helpful if we are going to make disciples, and it's helpful if, if, uh, if we're trying to evaluate our own discipleship. And the Sermon on the Mount will address both of those concerns. So the sermon begins here by describing who will be in the kingdom, and then as we will see, it will end by saying who is not in the kingdom. And both are equally shocking and stunning. And this is the reason why we need to do a careful examination of this. So I've alluded to this already, but let me just give you the significance of this. Uh, one commentator, uh, Bruner, he refers to this section as Jesus' state of the universe address. And this is just a powerful few chapters here. To get a glimpse of the significance of the sermon, we need to fast forward to the end of it. And in chapter 7, he says this. I think I put it on the screen. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching with was the, teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the, the, the significance of this, the crowd who had gathered, they, they were amazed at this sermon. When, they, when Jesus finished preaching this sermon here, they were just stunned by what they had just heard and the authority that it had been delivered. And so we have this idea of, of an astonished crowd and unparalleled authority here. And Jesus, as he's given this, he does have authority that no other human has ever had. And it's not just because he is God incarnate, but because he is the only one to come from heaven to earth. And so when he came from heaven and came down to earth, he brought this authority with him. And so when he sat down and delivered this address, which then Luke gives a summary in Luke's gospel of this as well. And he gives us, and so this was such a powerful address that people re repeated this and it was something that, that they went back to. I, I like what Philip Yancey said about this idea of Jesus' authority. Here he says, Unlike medieval kings who threw coins to the masses or modern politicians who make promises to the poor just before elections, Jesus had the ability to offer his audience lasting, even eternal, rewards. Alone of all people on earth, Jesus had actually lived on the other side. And he who came down from heaven knew well that the spoils of the kingdom of heaven can easily counterbalance whatever misery we might encounter in this life. And so this is what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, this is the life, this is what a true disciple looks like here. And this is, and this is what I do with people who are my own. So Paul's words in Romans 8.18 come to mind. 
He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus came from another place. He came from heaven to earth. And so he knew. He knew what life was like on the other side. And so he alone could say, here's, here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to live. And he did it with such authority that it amazed the, the people. So the significance of the sermon is the authority of Jesus over mankind, including you and me here today. He's telling us what it means to be a citizen of heaven, a disciple of Christ, a child of God. So if you're wrestling with those concepts of what does a citizen of heaven look like? What does a child of God really look like? What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, good news, Jesus answers that for us over the next three chapters here of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Now, before I get into the first beatitude, let me just give you a, a, a couple ideas about beatitudes quickly here. So a definition, general thought. First of all, what exactly is a beatitude? It's not a word that we use all the time, although we've, we say it, but, but what does it even mean? Now, we could get into the transliteration between the Latin, from the Latin and the Greek and, and how we get the word that we got and all that, but suffice it to say this. It means that it's a divine pronouncement of blessing. That's really what a beatitude is. It's, it's, a, it's a pronouncement of blessing from God. And he says, here is what it looks like to be blessed. That's what a beatitude is. And we have several of them here. So what's the structure of the beatitudes? And again, we could really dive into all this and and do the time. I'm just not going to. But I did want to point out this. Verse 3 and verse 10 are very important. The words kingdom of heaven in those verses are very important. Uh, because they were what's called an inclusio, which means that everything in between those are talking about the same subject. So here in these Beatitudes, it's talking about all the people who are in the kingdom of God. What do they look like? And Jesus is very clear about this. In, 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 in words that are sometimes brutal and sometimes hard to understand, in some ways, for us as we looked at this, we say, well, no, wait a minute here. So if you're saying this, this is descriptive of the citizen of heaven, then, and this isn't describing me, what does that mean? Well, that means you need to go back and look at your discipleship. You look at, are you truly a child of Christ? And I, my purpose is not to undermine the theological truth or doctrine of eternal security, which means that once you're saved, you're always saved and that you cannot lose your salvation. I, I affirm that doctrine. I believe the Scriptures teach that. I believe in Philippians when it says, He who began a good work in you will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. I believe that to be true. I do not believe we can lose our salvation. So my purpose in this series is not to call into question whether or not you can remain saved. But I believe Jesus' purpose here is to call into question are people even saved in the first place. We'll look into that. What are some general lessons? I took this from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I just wanted to share them with you as before we dive into that first beatitude. Some general lessons from the beatitudes is, number one, all Christians are expected to live out the beatitudes. Okay, so, so you need to know this, that when we go through this, this is not just for pastors. This is not just for, for church leaders. This is not just for seminarians or professors. This is, this, this is for every Christian here. This is, this is for all of us here. Okay, so all Christians are expected to live out the Beatitudes. Number two, all Christians are expected to live out all of the Beatitudes. This is not a buffet here. 
This is not like we walk down the line and, yes, I want this and I don't want that. This looks good. That looks overcooked. This looks you know, delicious. That looks like it's going to make me throw up. Okay, That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that we are expected to internalize and live out all of these, and we're going to see how we do that in a few minutes. Number three, Lloyd-Jones says these are not natural tendencies that Jesus is referring to. So he's not talking about, well, you know, some people are just naturally meek and, and humble, and, and so, so that's who he's referring to. No, he's saying that even if it's not our natural disposition, these are the things that God is calling us to. And number four, I like how Lloyd-Jones put this. He says these are the essential differences between Christians and non-Christians. These are the essential differences between those who are truly ch- children of God and those who are not. And, and, and so I think it's going to be very helpful for us as we go through this. So let's dive into this, this first beatitude here this morning. Here And then over the next several weeks, we'll, we'll take more beatitudes in succession. But because we have to do the introduction today, we're only going to focus on verse 3. Let me read it again. In verse 2, it says, He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, that phrase, he opened his mouth, speaks to the authority that he had there. You can read them like, well, of course he opened his mouth. You know, Matthew, why would you tell us that? You know, was he a ventriloquist? No, he opened his mouth. Well, the reason is he's saying that it has an idea of, of authority that he was speaking with. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, why did Jesus start his sermon this way as we consider this? This God blesses the broken, this first beatitude. Why, why did Jesus start his sermon this way? Now, this was a strategic, it was a, it was a very strong start to his sermon. Now, I think it's important that we understand and we recognize, first of all, that Jesus does not start with demands or commands. That's not how he starts. He doesn't start with a list of things you got to do and these demands that he puts on. But of all the commands that do follow in the Sermon on the Mount, and there are many, they point back to this first beatitude. This is why this one is so important. If we do not get this first beatitude right, then we misunderstand and we misapply the majority of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got to understand what Jesus meant by this because it's a powerful introduction. When he starts this, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so he started to define, who is it that's truly in the kingdom? Who is it that's truly my, my disciple? Who is it that's in my family here? And he says, you've got to get this down. Because if you don't get this down, then we're going to seriously misunderstand some things. I mean, later on here, we have in the sermon at one point in chapter 5, in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a command. He says, you must be perfect. Now, how in the world is that a legitimate request from God? God knows we're not perfect. God understands that we make mistakes every day. God knows our inability to be perfect. So why in the world in Jesus' sermon would he say, you've got to be perfect? And we can go through and look at all sorts of these things throughout the, the sermon here, and it looks unrealistic. And it only looks unrealistic because we don't understand this first beatitude. And when we understand this first beatitude, then we start to understand everything else. And so we've got to really understand this. Otherwise, we're going to mis- misapply the entire sermon. So, for example, I was trying to figure out how to, how to give a good example of this, and I figured it was time to put a picture on the screen. So, um, for example, to understand the local newspaper, The Onion, okay, one must first know that it's satire, okay? You know, The Onion, it, it, when it 
publishes stories that they're not true. Now, the funny part is sometimes they, they're so crazy that they could be true. Um, like this one was taken from several years ago. Um, U.S. vows to, defi- to defeat whoever it is we're at war with. Um, you know, in the Bush administration, um, uh, one I saw, and I just couldn't get a, a high enough resolution picture of it. It showed President Bush in the Oval Office, and it says, President Bush asked the nations for a moment of silence so he could figure out what's going on. Um, I figured, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, the, the onion, you, if you don't know that that's a satire site, then you're going to end up start believing some crazy stuff. You're going to think that there's some, some, some really crazy stories out there. And there's other satire sites out there. There's many of them. Among them is probably one of the first. And it's amazing to me how many stories I see posted online by people. I can't believe this. I can't believe Obama's going to do this. I can't believe this. And it takes me about three and a half seconds to look at the site and say, oh, it's a satire site. Okay? Check your sources, people. Little little side point there. But the point is, if you don't get, you don't understand it, you're going to miss it. Here's another one. To fully understand MSNBC, you have to understand its liberal bent. You have to understand that it has a liberal bent to it to understand that what it's doing. And, and for the record, I don't really care that news stations have bias one way or another, as long as we understand it. And to fully understand Fox News, you have to understand its equally conservative bent. So to fully understand these things, you've got to understand where they're coming from. The point is without getting people too distracted here, is that if we don't understand this first beatitude, we're going to miss the sermon. So we've got to, to really make sure we understand this. Every command that follows should be obeyed in the light of this beatitude here. Again, I turn to D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one here, right here, this beatitude. So we've got to understand this, because if we don't understand this, then it's not going to form everything else. So let me, let's ask two more questions here, and then we'll, we'll figure this out together this morning. What did Jesus mean when he said blessed, or blessed, however you choose to pronounce it? Now, there really is, we can understand this, there really is no true English parallel to this word. Often people translate as happy, or they refer to as happy. That really is too simplistic because it simply describes an emotion, and that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Approved is probably a better understanding of what Jesus was driving at here. And so, like a, a father who can't help but smile when his son does something that he approves of, God's smile of approval is found by the poor in spirit. You know, I I was looking at pictures, and I I came across this one here, and and I just, the the joy on the dad's face, and probably it's not even his true son, it's a stock photograph, but at least what they're trying to communicate is that he's just enamored by his son, and his son brings a smile to him. And there's approval. My, my son, Isaiah, he turns two in a couple weeks. And, and we've discovered in the last few months, the kid loves basketball. And, and he'll point to the TV. And go, basketball, basketball. And go, you want to watch basketball? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I pick him up, and it's a good excuse for me to sit in the recliner. And so I, I turn on the basketball game. doesn't really matter which one. Turn on. He's like, yes, yeah. You know? <laughs> Loves basketball. Now you do. You're doing what I do. 
I look at him, I kind of just smile. And I'm, I'm approving of it because he's bringing me joy and because cause, cause I love the kid, right? You know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's kind of funny. You know, when Jesus is saying here, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying those who find that approving smile of God are the poor in spirit. That's who get the approving smile of God. That's who God looks at with, with a smile of love, a tender love of a father towards a child here. And for this person, this poor in spirit, whatever that means, theirs is the kingdom. They are a true disciple of Christ. The poor in spirit. So that naturally leads us to what did Jesus mean? By poor in spirit. Well, I'll tell you what he didn't mean. He didn't mean a vow of poverty. That's not what he meant. He didn't mean that, well, in order to get to the kingdom of God, we need to take a vow of poverty and, and, and try to be as poor as we can. That's not what he meant. He didn't mean a sense of self-loathing. I just hate myself. That's not what he means. Or advocating feelings of worthlessness. That's not what Jesus is getting at. So what is he getting at? What does this mean? The idea of poor in spirit is this. It's recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. That's what he means here. Recognizing spiritual bankruptcy. It's the idea of a beggar. One who is completely dependent upon others for survival. That's what we have here. The idea of a beggar here. Someone who, who they need other people to be gracious to them and kind to them in order for them to survive this world. Probably Luke 18, 9-14 is probably the best illustration of what he's getting at here. And of course, that's the, the, the passage where Jesus tells a parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in this, fair, in, in this story that Jesus is telling there in Luke chapter 18, he says, you know, there was two of them. And, 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 they, and they were both praying. And, and, and the, the Pharisee who had everything together and who was, who was esteemed by, 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 by everyone around them and who were amazed at their devotion and their knowledge of the, of the law, of the scriptures, and things like that. This is what he prays. He says, Father, I thank you. I thank you that, that you have blessed me in so many ways, and you've done so many good things, and I, I thank you that you have, you have not made me this, and you've not made me that, and, and I thank you that I'm not, I, I'm not like, this, like, this, like this, this tax collector here who, by, parenthetically here, tax collectors were actually hated because they were viewed as traitors to the Jewish community. And so he said, I, I, I thank you that, that I haven't sold my soul to the devil like this person has here. And then in that text, then Jesus flips over to the, that tax collector there, and he says, and this tax collector, he couldn't even look up towards heaven, and he just, he just wept, and he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus has an interesting statement after that. He says, I tell you, the man who walked away justified was this man, the tax collector. Justified is a legal term, meaning that they're guilty of a crime, but they're declared not guilty because of a gracious act by the judge. He says, the one who walked away justified. So he says both in a sense, both are guilty, what Jesus is saying there, but the one who was declared not guilty was the tax collector. I think this is what he's getting at here is this idea of poor in spirit. This tax collector knew his spiritual bankruptcy. Charles Quarles said this, 
the poor in spirit are spiritual paupers, paupers who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. They realize that there is nothing good in them that deserves God's love and forgiveness and depend on God's grace alone for their salvation. You see, Jesus says the ones who are in the kingdom, the ones who are true disciples of Christ, they are the ones who realize that they can bring nothing to the table of salvation. They can do nothing to earn salvation. They can do nothing to gain, fa- gain favor with God or gain favor with me. There's nothing they can do to be justified. They're the ones who realize that, who truly believe that, and that informs their actions like the tax collector. It informed his prayer life. It informed his view of this world. It was, it was that person who understood that there was he was spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus here is saying, it's that person who has the kingdom. It's not anyone else. The only ones who can be in the kingdom are the ones who understand that they bring nothing to the table and they're spiritually bankrupt. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this. And I thought, I looked for a picture to share with you, and I couldn't because it was funny because it was a picture of my freshman year in college, and you all would have had a laugh about that. But in my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, uh, I joined a team at the college I went to. Um, It was a traveling team. We did uh, vacation Bible schools and churches and, and teen camps and things like that, children's ministry. And so for all summer long, we just jumped into a van and we would go from one church to the next and we'd run these children's programs and things like that. Well, the college viewed these traveling teams as kind of like PR. And so they would, they would have, give us displays that we'd have to set up and we'd have to try to sell the college and all that stuff. And it was really annoying, but we did it. And there was, there was also this thing because we, we would always get to the church and be there on Sunday and then we'd start the children's ministry, usually on Monday. Sometimes Sunday nights, but usually Mondays. And um, what the college would do is they would get the team ready together, and then the training, they would say, why don't you guys learn a couple songs to sing? So if the churches, we were in a lot of really small churches, if they want you know, special music or something, you, you guys could sing a song together. And so the day came where the, one of the professors from the music department came in to our team meeting and get the five of us together. And they're like, he says, here's a couple songs that I've picked out and let's go through them. So I get my sheet of music, my, they get theirs. And so we start singing. And we get about halfway through the first verse and he stops like, well, let's try this. And so we do this next song. And then we get about halfway through and he stops and he says this. He says, hey, Jeremy, I, I forgot something in my office. He says, w- w- would you be willing to go and get the sheet of music that's in my, in my office? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I go up to the third floor of the building, go into his office, and he'd give me some description of what to look for. It looked like a bomb had gone off in his office. And so I'm, I'm looking all over for this thing. I'm like, I can't find this thing. And I thought, I am not going back empty-handed. Well, sure enough, I found it. I find it. I bring it down. And I walk into the room, and there's the other four team members singing a song with this guy. And I walk up, and he's like, oh, thanks, Jeremy. He takes her, and he goes, well, I think that's enough practice for today. And he leaves the room. It was at that moment I realized I had nothing to offer musically in this guy's mind. He had, he had very skillfully moved me out of the team. And, and there I'm sitting there, and the other four are looking at me, trying not to laugh at me. I was like, all right. So seriously, for the whole entire summer, the team would get up and sing, and I would sit in the front row. 
You know, I had nothing to offer. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't offer anything. I was bankrupt musically in that situation. One other illustration, one of the best movies of all time is Hoosiers. Hoosiers is, is this movie where it's about a basketball team in Indiana, Hickory, uh, and, there, and uh, Gene Hackman plays the coach, Norman Beale, uh, Dale, Norman Dale. And, uh, and, and there's this situation, I, I got a screen capture of it. This, this scene that you see on the screen there, here's what happened there, is that he is trying to, to get the team uh, to, to understand uh, a structure and authority and everything like this. And so he's holding up the, the philosophy playbook kind of that he has uh, for the team. And what, is, what has happened there is that they, there was a small team. They, they only had a few few players, barely enough people to, to make a basketball team. One of their players gets injured, so he's out. And then another player fouls out. So now you have to have five players on the court. So now uh, uh, they're really down to it. So here's what happens. There's one particular player that is not listening at all. Just, just He's doing his own thing. So coach takes him out of the game and sits him on the bench. Well, consequently, the replacement follows out. So now the team only has four members on the court at this point. They need five. And so the guy gets up and starts checking into the game who the coach had benched. And coach says, sit down. He says, wait, we need five. He says, sit down. And so the ref comes up to him and says, hey, we need a fifth. And he says, my team is on the court. And what was he saying in that moment? He was saying, this guy who's legitimate to be in the, in, in the game right now, he's got nothing to offer us right now because he doesn't understand his position. And all the crowd's yelling at the coach. It's, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he holds this rule up and says, this is more important than winning the game. What are you saying there? You know, we got to get to the point, this is what Jesus is saying here, is that we got to realize that there is nothing that we bring to the table to God that he needs. There's nothing that we can offer him that he needs. There's nothing that we can do to say, yes, I need that person in my kingdom. I need to save that soul because he's got this such and such ability or she has this talent or whatever it is. There is nothing in all of our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. And so here we get this understanding here that the poor in spirit is someone who understands that they can't bring anything to the table. So why is this so important? Why is it? Why is being poor in spirit so important? I told you, if you don't get this, we're not going to get the rest of the sermon. It's so important because like a car with a bad alignment, we have the propensity to drift towards self-reliance and autonomy. And... Like also like a car's bad alignment is detrimental to its health and functionality, self-reliance and autonomy is detrimental to our spiritual health. And what Jesus is saying here, he says, listen, the ones who are saved, the ones who are truly my disciples, the ones who have the kingdom of God are the ones who are poor in spirit. Didn't the disciples face the same temptation towards self-sufficiency and autonomy when they neglected prayer? before attempting to cast out a demon in Mark 9? Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? Or what about when they were fighting about who would be considered great in the kingdom? And we can be down on the disciples and we can say that they were terrible for doing that, but we are the exact same way. Let's be honest. Jesus is saying that is not the, the sign of someone who is in the kingdom here. What Jesus is advocating in this sermon is countercultural. This self-reliance and autonomy is the American dream, is it not? 
At least it is according to the Chicago Bulls owner, Jerry Reinsdorf. When Michael Jordan first retired, Reinsdorf described Michael Jordan as this. He said this, he's living the American dream. The American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do and can do anything and everything that you do want to do. So the American dream, according to Reinsdorf, is complete independence, self-sufficiency, and autonomy. But this is not what Jesus is saying here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that only those who understand their emptiness and their dependence will be in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Anyone, only the people who will be in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who understand their emptiness and dependence upon him. This, this is important because it's a matter of life and death. When it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven there, that's emphatic in the way it's placed in the original language. It means that that's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say theirs, the kingdom of heaven. Who is Who owns the kingdom of heaven? It's the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God belongs only to the poor in spirit. Christ's message in this beatitude is that when individuals recognize their absolute inability to save themselves and cast them on Christ in total dependence on him, he graciously reigns over them as king here and now and graciously promises them a part in his future kingdom. Our absolute inability to save ourselves. We tend to fully embrace this concept, or we think we do, at conversion, but over time we forget it. Pastor and commentator Arkin Hughes says this, Poverty of spirit is something we never outgrow. In fact, the more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty. Let me ask you this. Let me try to apply this in some ways. What would you do? What would you say if when you died, the very first thing Jesus says to you is, you deserve to go to hell. What would you think? What would you say in that moment? If it's not, I agree. Then we're not poor in spirit. I thought about saying it this way. Every person in this room, myself included, but for, to, to get to punch more, I'll say it this way. You deserve to go to hell. If that's offensive to you, if, if the thing that comes out right away is, well, wait a minute, but, and it's not about God's grace, you don't understand foreign spirit. You see, actually, to, to, to put in a term that maybe we would understand a little bit better is that's like middle class and spirit thinking. Here's how I define that. Middle class and spirit is, is I know, but. I know, but I can. It, it, it's kind of like the, the middle class and possessions. The middle class in possessions in, in, in a world is, is that people would say, well, you know, I know I can't afford a 14-bedroom mansion, but I can afford a four-bedroom house. Or, or I know I can't afford a yacht, but I can't afford a cruise. Or I, I, I know I can't afford to buy a Rolls-Royce or a Corvette, but I can buy a Toyota or a Ford or a Chevy or whatever it is. 
I know, but I can, even if it means putting on credit because credit is available to me. You see, for the poor, on the other hand, they have no options of credit or notions of attaining such things. Now, don't get me wrong here. The point of this is not saying that a four-bedroom house or a Toyota or whatever it is, or even a Corvette for that matter, is bad or it's wrong to have. That's not the point. If that's the point you're taking, you're missing it. That's not what I'm saying here. What I was saying is that a poor in spirit, a poor person, or let's, let's stick with the, the possession side analogy here, a poor person doesn't even, doesn't even think about those things because they know they have the complete inability to get those things. But middle class, we do. We do have those abilities to do those things. My wife and I have been on a cruise before. Best vacation we ever had. We loved it. But why were we able to do that? Because by God's mercy and grace, we're not poor. But there's plenty of poor people that can. Now, what Jesus, here in this specific text, he's not necessarily emphasizing about possessions here, but I'm using that to illustrate the point. See, middle class in spirit says this. Remember, middle class, I know, but I can. I know that I'm a sinner, but I've given given my life to serve God. I, I know that I fall short of God's mark of perfection, but I go to church. I, I know that I'm not perfect, but I read my Bible, and I know it well. I know that I make a lot of mistakes, but I do pray. I know that I'm a sinner, but I, 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 I'm going to turn over a new leaf and do better. That's middle class in spirit. And Jesus says theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. It's only the poor in spirit. Rather, conversely, the poor in spirit says this, I know I'm a sinner and deserve hell. I know I'm part of Romans three ten through 12, which says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Poor in spirit says, that's me. I, I'm part of that. On my own, in my heart, in my natural tendency of who I am at my core, is this, is that I, I, I deserve hell because of my sinfulness. You see, the reality is that if we're middle class in spirit, we'll enjoy religion. We'll love religion. We'll like the Bible. We'll like coming to church. We'll like studying the scriptures. But we won't inherit the kingdom of God. Because we're adding those things to salvation. And saying, I know this, but... Where Jesus here, he says, those who are in the kingdom are the ones who are poor in spirit, who just stop and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve hell. Now, where their uh, uh, conjunction comes in is, but God's grace. Their conjunction comes in with what uh, Pastor Mike was saying last week of that beautiful text in in Romans, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, uh, but God... That's where the poor in spirit says, the poor in spirit says, I know I'm a sinner, but God has saved me. But God has been merciful to me. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. The poor in spirit. And so if we're middle class in spirit, I'm just using that to try to give us some terms that we can understand, we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The text is very clear about this. You know, when Jesus confronted the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, 10, the man said that he had kept the law well, and Jesus said he lacked something, and this was this, abandonment of everything but Christ. And again, the point wasn't a vow of poverty. It's to be completely devoted to Christ. And if you lost everything but had Christ, the question is, would it be enough for you? 
John Piper, in his book, God is Gospel, asked the question, if you could have the riches of, of heaven, if you could go through and, and have the streets of gold, and you could have the feast and everything like that in heaven, and if Jesus were not there, would it be enough for you? And if the answer is yes, then the kingdom of heaven isn't yours. Because it's about Jesus. It's about our discipleship and fellowship of Jesus Christ. And so we are to be completely devoted to Christ. So that if we lost everything but had Christ, it would be enough. Poor in spirit says, I need Christ and that's all. I can't bring anything to this deal. I need Christ. And so, sometimes we're just not willing to give things up. Today in Adult Discipleship Hour, I took some notes. Uh, Chad did a great job of, of leading the lesson. I encourage you to be part of it. It's just a great series. He was asking the question about what are we willing to risk for God and why are we not willing to risk for God? And he, he, he summarized it this way. He says, the root of our unwillingness to risk for God is our dramatic underestimation of God's grace and power and goodness. A dramatic underestimation of God's grace, power, and goodness. And Moses, in the text that we're in today, reminded us of God's his reputation, his power, his faithfulness, his goodness, his forgiveness, and his steadfast love. And when we have those things, we need nothing else. And see, the poor in spirit understand that. The poor in spirit understand that this is really what I need. One of the benefits of being poor is that you understand the difference between necessity and luxury, of between need and want. And so for those of us, maybe who've grown up in a Christian home, maybe who've grown up in the church, over time this gets a little muddy, it's a little clouded. But the reality is that we need Christ. The reality is that we need to come back to saying that I need to be poor in spirit and say the only thing I need is Christ because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you this. If someone were to follow you around for a week and listen to all your conversations at work and view all of your internet and social media activity and hear your conversations at home, other than being totally creeped out, what would they say, what would they conclude as the most important thing to you? See, the poor in spirit is Jesus, is Christ. So what brings you the most joy? Is it possession? Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it your identity as a dad, mom, teacher, business person? Poor in spirit says all those things are informed by having Christ. You see, religion's not the answer here. The gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that will make us comfortable with being poor. We know, as Mike said earlier, Pastor Mike said earlier, we know the way up is down. How do we know that? Because Jesus gave up his riches to become poor in order to redeem us. He, he came down and became poor and gave up his riches so that we could have riches later on. You know, and, and we know that, that only Jesus was perfectly poor in spirit, and he should be our example. How do we see Jesus as, uh, him illustrating his poor in spirit? Think about it this way. Jesus prayed. Think, think about it. Jesus is God. And yet in his incarnation, he willingly set aside some of those, those attributes and he, he humbled himself to come down here to, to condescend to be with us, to save us, to redeem us. And there was times where he would just go away and pray and ask God for direction and ask God for, for guidance and strength and things like that. That's poor in spirit. He said, the only thing I need is you, Father. The only thing I need is you, Father. So we abandoned everything that the world says is most important, and we follow Christ. If we can get this concept of poor in spirit, we can understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. 
If we get the idea of poor in spirit, we will see that everything is a gift from God. Everything that you and I have is a gift from God. It's not something that, that we've earned or whatever. It's, it's, it's something that, that God has given to us. I've had conversations before with people where I bring this notion up and I get pushback right away. And they say, well, wait a minute, I've worked hard. Ah, there's a middle class of spirit coming out. Of course you've worked hard. Let me ask you something. Who gave you the energy to work hard? Who gave you the desire to work hard? Who gave you that, that gumption to do that? Whereas there's plenty of examples of people that don't have that. Is it because you're inherently better than them? It's grace. So we understand that everything we have is a gift. And so when we do get that point, we have this poverty in spirit. You know what goes away? You know what melts away? Entitlement. It just melts away. Because we understand that everything we have is a gift from God. And we're poor in spirit. Our generosity will skyrocket, as will our satisfaction and joy in life. You know, I really believe some of us really lack true joy. And I think it's because we're not poor in spirit. There's too much religion that we're bringing to the table in efforts to please God. Therefore, life is exhausting and not fulfilling. Poor in spirit. I think some of us just need to spend time with God this afternoon and say, God, I need you and I need you only. And I bring nothing to this. Now you say, well, wait a minute here. Is that just a life then of laziness? And say, well, I can't do anything. No, 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 no. Remember, commands are going to follow. Commands are coming. You see, commands aren't going to make any sense unless we understand that it's coming from someone who understands that what they're doing is not earning God's favor. But rather, it's a mark of someone whom God has shown favor to. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let me ask this in closing. How do we become poor in spirit? Well, it's not by looking more at ourselves. It's by looking more at God. And some of you had this poverty of spirit but have wandered away from it. Repent. Ask God to, to bring you back to where the only satisfaction that you have is Jesus Christ and that, and that everything you do is out of love for him, not out of trying to get superiority over other people or gain advantage with God. Now, some of you have never had this poverty of spirit. Maybe for you, conversion was what was expected of you, so you complied. Or you were so afraid of hell that you asked God not to send you there. But now your life shows no indication of being a follower, a disciple of Christ. You see, my friend, that, that, that's not poor in spirit. Rather, that's middle class in spirit. Meaning you use whatever you can to advance your future. And that's not why, that's not, that, 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 that's not a disciple of Christ. And the disciple of Christ isn't about, well, man, I sure don't want to go to hell. And so I'm just going to say this prayer and, 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 and so Jesus has to save me. No, that's not conversion. Conversion is I am utterly lost and God loves me, and I love God for it, and I'm going to place my faith in Him. There's two vastly different things there. So I think we need to repent and ask God to give us a poor in spirit mentality. And if, if our church was made up of these people who are poor in spirit, there's no limit to what God would do here. I mean, souls, I just imagine the souls that would be saved and the impact on our community, I think it would just take our breath away because we realize it's all about God and, and, and that we're really poor in spirit. We're not, we're not always helping people from positions of strength. We're, 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 we're blind people that, that are, uh, have been given sight by God, and so now we're helping other blind people. That's all. This beatitude is so important. If we don't get this, all of what we do here in church is in vain. 
We will teach in vain. We will sing in vain. We will read the Bible in vain. We will do ministry in vain. And let's implore, I just implore of us today, let's just get alone with God and ask God, say, God, may we be poor in spirit because the sober reality is, and I'm not making this up, this is what Jesus says, only those are going to be in the kingdom. And we're going to see at the end of this sermon where Jesus says, many are going to be say to me in that day, did not I do many mighty works in your name? Did not I cast out demons in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me who work iniquity, I never knew you. It's sobering. I, I, I believe every Sunday I, I preach to people who believe they're, they're, they're saved and they're not. Now, do I have seen that about everyone? No. And I don't know who that, all that is. I don't have names. But if Jesus says that's the case, why should we think our church would be an exception to what Jesus says? So get, get along with God today, tomorrow. Say, God, Give me this poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would be true disciples of Christ. I pray that we would recognize that we have nothing to offer you. You know, and even our good deeds, there's, there's a mix of selfishness. And forgive us for that. But you are a God who can, can take all of our weaknesses and use them for your glory and for for our good and so lord what i pray i pray for us right now as a church i pray that we would be poor in spirit that we would understand that everything we have is is a gift if we're if we're maturing in our spiritual walk with you which there are people here today doing that that is a blessing and that comes from you and it's a sign of your grace in their lives. It's not because they're better. And this was the chief problem the Pharisees had. So I pray we would not fall into that. I pray that we would always recognize, God, I am not better than anyone else. And God, I need you. And God, you do your work here and may I love you more. That's poor in spirit. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.